the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God has been addressing the nation of Israel before they enter to conquer the Promised Land. God speaking through Moses reminded the people that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. They were to not forget God's civil and ceremonial laws when dwelling in the land. In chapter 23, we saw how Israel was to deal with their neighbors. They were to extend peace and love completely different than the people around them. Now, we will see how the nation of Israel was to love those closest to them, namely, to love their own spouse as God loved his people. This would be countercultural back in that time period. We continue to look at God's outlook on marriage as we join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 2. That's not the only boundary that God set. He sets a boundary regarding divorce, but then he sets a boundary regarding remarriage. He limits socially acceptable attempts at polygamy. Look at verse 2. He says, now when she is departed out of his house, her husband's house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, in other words, he comes into a similar boat where he doesn't want the relationship anymore, and he writes her a bill of divorcement, and he gives it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house, or if he dies, that second husband dies, which took her to be his wife, her first husband, which sent her away, well, he can't take her back again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not cause the land to sin, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance. So if she gets divorced, she remarries another guy, he dies or he divorces her, she can't go back to her first husband. Why? Well, it explains because she's already been defiled. What does that mean? This is the only time this form of this verb occurs in the Bible. And it refers to the defilement that's associated with someone who commits adultery. In other words... By divorcing her and causing her to go find someone else to take care of her and marry her, you have caused her to commit adultery when you did that. Sound familiar? It's just like what Jesus said, right? He said, whosoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whosoever marries her after divorce commits adultery as well. Same thing that God says here. I do find it interesting that God calls a person who is legally married by society an adulteress. I find that interesting. Just because our government or any government or anybody says something is a marriage or something makes people married, just because you got a slip of paper doesn't mean it's okay with the Lord. Marriage is something defined by God and no one else. God does permit it because of their hard hearts, but he says no way to the idea of returning to your first husband. He says that is an abomination in the eyes of God. That act of the first husband taking her back, why? Well, this idea of a woman being passed back and forth between men was repulsive to the Lord. Sex is reserved for married couples who have become one flesh by their vows and is to be enjoyed by those two people alone for as long as they're both alive. 
Listen, multiple marriage situations may be perfectly fine and acceptable in our culture, but to God, it is just polygamy with nice clothes on. That's what the Bible teaches. This is why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 19, 9. You know, divorce and remarriage, except for the one exception that Jesus gives, there is adultery, even if society accepts it. Now, I remember I was at a, I don't know if I was at a conference or something, and I, I heard a pastor describe monogamy as one wife at a time. Well, I'm not a, uh, and pardon my language here, I'm not a Beavis and Butthead fan, and I don't ever watch the show. For whatever reason, at some point in time, I saw a clip where they were laughing and going, I believe in monogamy, one wife at a time, ha, ha, ha. So I went up to the gentleman afterwards, and when I told him that he defined monogamy the same way Beavis and Butthead did, he didn't know how to answer. (laughs) I'm here tonight to tell you with full biblical authority that one wife at a time is not a biblical definition of monogamy. When Jesus reestablished biblical marriage in Matthew 19, he clearly stated it was one man and woman for life. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. They might say, wait a second, Pastor, what about that exception of fornication in Matthew 19.9? Listen, who or what qualifies for that topic is way too big for this evening because we have many verses to go through and I'm nowhere near getting through them. So we will cover that when we do the book of Matthew. Or you can listen to my teachings on 1 Corinthians 7 where we go through divorce and remarriage there. So you can get the CDs and we do talk about it there. But the key principle I think that Moses is trying to communicate through this is, man, you need to love your spouses, not give up on them, right? That's the idea. Women, you need to love your husbands, not give up on them. And God himself is our example of this. Look at Jeremiah chapter three with me. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love this one. You gotta realize context too. Things are bad. Bad in Judah. People aren't walking with the Lord. God's pronouncing judgment through Babylon. Jeremiah is this prophet of judgment. You know, he's the weeping prophet because nobody listens to him. And yet here, look at the heart of God. And here we echo Jesus' words in the New Testament. This is hundreds of years after Moses wrote what he wrote in Deuteronomy 24. And he references it. The Lord references it here. And look at what the Lord says. He goes, they say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? I mean, isn't he referencing Deuteronomy 24 here? Look what the Lord says. But even though you've played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, says the Lord. Talk about a guy who doesn't give up on his marriage. The Lord himself, even though his people, his bride had been unfaithful, his wife had been unfaithful, so much so that if you read this passage, he put them away. He divorced them. And what does he say though? Return unto me. Return unto me. I put you away that you would see your condition and you would realize your need to be reconciled to me. And now here's what I call you to do. Return unto me. Leave all those lovers behind. Return to me. I would ask you this evening, does that describe your commitment to your spouse? That even when they really let you down, that you're saying, come back to me. I'm here for you. Return to me. That God is trying to instill that kind of commitment among married couples. It's reinforced by the next verse in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. Here we see that not only does God say, you know, you need to love those closest to you in your lasting commitment, but he says you need to love your spouse in your initial commitment. He says in verse five, now when a man has taken a new wife, and so the word there new means something not previously experienced. So these are people who have never been married before. So these are newlyweds. When a man who's never been married before, he marries a woman who's never been married before, he says, he shall not go out to war. Neither shall he be charged with any business. The word they're charged actually means to travel abroad. He's not to go away on any business. 
but he shall be free at home for one year. He'll be exempt or free from obligation of business travels or war for one year. This wasn't a freedom to do whatever he wanted to do. It wasn't the, woohoo, I've always wanted to join the volleyball team. No, that's not what this is for. It was to free him up to focus on a very important, very specific task. And what was it? To make his wife happy. Don't you love that? He says, and he shall cheer up his wife, which he has taken. That's what that word cheer up means. It means to bring happiness to, to enjoy life with. You know, life in ancient times, it was just as busy, if not more busy than we are today. You know, it kept men and women segregated most of the time, but God wanted his people to be different. He wanted their marriages to be different. So for their first year together, serving and dating their wives was to be the husband's top priority. Remember, they didn't date like we do. They didn't get to know each other like we do. So that was to be the goal the whole first year. Live it up. Enjoy time with your wife. Make her smile. Make her laugh. Invest into the relationship. Be merry with her. Make memories. Share life together. That was to be the husband's top priority so that the relationship would be strong and vital for the challenges ahead. When people are in our premarital counseling, we tell them that marriage is the highest commitment that you will make next to your commitment to Jesus Christ. So it's not to be entered into lightly. And it must never, that commitment must never be ignored. Husbands, you must love your wives. You must lay down all the individualistic goals, dreams, and pursuits that characterized your single life. You have to lay that down. All of those take a backseat to her, and you must establish that fact early and often, because in doing so, your wife will feel secure in your love, which the Bible declares is a wife's most chief need. You might be saying, okay, Pastor, well, well, I have not done that. I have failed to do that. What do I do? Simple. Repent. Repent. Start doing it today. I dated Beverly for five years. We had an amazing friendship. But I had issues when we got married. Issues in how I treated her. Issues in how I handled conflict with her. You know, issues in how I spent my time, my investment into her. And I remember I went to a pastor's conference and I thought, well, I've only been married for, I think at that time, maybe a year and a half. And and I said, I'm going to go to this marriage workshop though. And just, I couldn't think of any other workshops applied to me. And so I said, well, I'm married, so I'll go to this one. And man, it was one of the most convicting things I ever went to in my life. The Lord showed me the path that was going down by how I treated her. And when I came home, I had a whole page in my notebook full of things that I needed to apologize for and repent of. And I came home and I, I read them off one by one. And I said, I confess this is sin to you and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? I want you to be the priority. I want you to know. I want you to feel secure in my love for you from now on. And I'm gonna work really hard at doing things right as far as this goes. You know, if, if you've failed to make her the priority, you know, I would encourage you to get along with the Lord and get out a notebook and make a list and then bring it to her and say, this is where I failed, but I don't want to do that anymore. I have repented and I want to change. I want you to know you're the priority. I promise you, it'll be a good start to moving in the right direction. They need to love their wives, those who are most close to you. Secondly, verse six, he now he addresses, you need to love your customers. He says, no man shall take the nether or the upper millstone for a pledge, for he takes a man's life to pledge. Now, a pledge would be a security for a loan, like collateral. You would take this and say, this is how we know you're gonna fulfill the loan. 
Well, he says when you enter into that business transaction where you need collateral, he says, I don't want you taking the nether stone, the bottom stone of the millstone, or the upper one. The upper one required two stones, one on the top and one on the bottom, to, to grind out the grain. You'd couple them together. One would be vertical, the other one would be horizontal, and you'd run the, the top one around in a circle, and it would grind out the grain so you could eat. And so he says, you can't take one or the other, okay? You cannot do that because if you take one, they can't make any food. You know, they wouldn't be able to eat. You might as well be taking their very lives as collateral since they can't eat. If you're here tonight and you own a business, whether you provide product to people or you provide services to people, can I encourage you to treat people like people and not transactions? I mean, that's what he's saying here. These are people. They're not transactions. They still have to eat. Still got to live. You know, remember that because God does not treat people as property and he severely opposes those who do so. Verse seven, he says, now if a man be found stealing any one of his brethren of the children of Israel and he makes merchandise of him, he treats him like a slave or he tries to sell him as a slave. He says, then that thief shall die and you shall put evil away from among you. God does not like kidnapping. That's what the word stealing there. If you kidnap somebody to treat them like a slave or to sell them as a slave, he says, no, 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 no. That thief shall die and that's how you'll put away or purge the evil from your midst. You know, even though the topic is kidnapping, when you couple it with verse six, this is one of the strongest statements against slavery in the Old Testament. Don't listen to anybody who tells you that the Old Testament permitted slavery. It doesn't permit slavery. It permitted indentured servitude, which is completely different. God hates slavery, and he calls it an evil in the land that he would punish if Israel didn't deal with it correctly. Now, kidnapping or enslavement, whether through keeping a person down by overwhelming debt or by seizing them by force, either way, they were considered capital crimes in Israel. So I wonder if only we treated these crimes with such seriousness today, maybe we wouldn't have as many of these problems. So as a Christian, don't be found ever treating people like transactions. Treat them as people, as those that God has created. See them as God sees them. Next, verse eight, how do you handle those in your community who are troubled, those close to you who are troubled? He says, take heed in the plague of leprosy that you observe diligently and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you. As I commanded them, so shall you observe to do. And remember, he says, what the Lord your God did unto Miriam by the way after that you were come forth out of Egypt. Now, here he says, pay close attention. That's what take heed means to pay close attention to doing something the right way. And what is it? To what the Levites command you concerning someone who has leprosy. What are those commands? Well, go back to Leviticus 13 and 14. Leviticus 13 taught the Levites how to identify a leprous plague that needed to be dealt with. And chapter 14 dealt with how you handled someone who was healed of leprosy, skin disease, coming back into the community. So both the problem and the solution. He says, make sure you follow all all the instructions I already gave there. But why does God bring that up here? If he's already said it, why does he bring it up? It kind of seems out of the blue. Well, verse nine explains. He says, do what they say, but make sure you remember what the Lord your God did unto Miriam by the way after that you were come out of Egypt. What did God do to Miriam by the way? This is a reference to Numbers chapter 12. It's the whole chapter. And remember in Numbers chapter 12 that Miriam and Aaron got upset at Moses, right? Why did they get upset at Moses? Because he had a wife with a different skin color, right? She had a different skin color. And they got upset by that. 
when that happened, they started to critique Moses and they started to say, why is it that you, you're the one that only hears from the Lord? Don't we all hear from the Lord too? Why is it that you get to be a spokesperson? And when that happened, the Lord came onto the scene and he called Moses and Miriam and Aaron into the cloud of his glory. And he said, I don't just talk to Moses like I talk to anybody. He's different. I talk to him face to face. I don't give him dreams like I do other prophets. I don't give him visions like I do other prophets. I speak to him face to face. And who are you to question how I speak? You've not questioned Moses. You've questioned me. And when God's glory left, Miriam had full on leprosy everywhere. And Aaron cracked. He pleaded with Moses, Moses, pray to the Lord that God would forgive us for this thing. I mean, your sister, she's, she looks like she's gonna die. She's like she came dead out of the womb. Please pray that the Lord restores her. And Moses did, and you know what God did? He said, listen, I'll heal her, but she needs to go outside the camp for seven days, just like I already set up in Leviticus. You need to follow the rules with her, and then after you see that she's clean in seven days, she can come back in. There will be those close to us who've made bad decisions that have landed them in trouble. Don't ignore bringing up what needs to change when you minister to that person. We get people here who call all the time. They need financial help. They're in trouble. They don't attend here. They don't go to church anywhere. And I could very easily write them a check or go to the the, the place they're staying and, and pay a bill for them. We could do all those things. And sometimes we do. But the idea is I don't just want to help them now because they'll be on the phone with another church later. Because if they're calling us, it means they have no support system around them. And so what I do with them and what we encourage the people here and minister to them is we say, have a conversation with them. Why don't you have any support system? Do you know the Lord? Do you have a body of believers that you can count on? If you don't, we have a loving church right here who'd love to be your support system. God wants to forgive you of your sin. The Lord wants to help you make better decisions. There are people here who want to love you and help you out. So you need to change. You need to make better decisions. You need to do that. So don't ignore bringing up what needs to change. But here's the thing Moses wants him to remember. Don't make him feel like there's no hope for restoration. Don't make him feel like there's no way out because of the bad decisions they've made. And don't you dare treat them like second-class citizens after they've repented. Don't you dare because they're poor or they're in trouble or their lives are a wreck. God healed and restored Miriam. That's the only way she can come back in the camp is if God healed her. And he wants to do the same for those and with those in our circle who have gotten themselves into trouble by bad decisions. So if you have people like that around you, give them the help they need both in if you can assist them, but also with telling them how to make better decisions. When they're trying to change, they're trying to make better decisions, don't you dare treat them like second-class citizens because of the trouble they've gotten themselves into. Next, he deals with how they should handle the poor that are close to them. Verse 10, he said, now when you do lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to fetch his pledge. Man, that would be hardcore. Man, you owe me money, you know, or you need, you need a loan? I'm going to go in and take some collateral from your house. Give me that Xbox. Give me that big screen TV. I like that, that popcorn popper. No, he says, you'll stand outside. The idea is you become a creditor to somebody. You need to stand outside. And the man to whom you do lend, he shall bring out the pledge abroad unto you. The word there, abroad, doesn't just mean outside. It means in a public place. So in other words, there should be no shady private deals that would take advantage of him. And, and this applies to any situation. Verse 10 says, when you are become a creditor to your brother in anything, whether it's big or small, you need to do it in a public place, take his collateral in a public place. 
And then it says in verse 12, and if the man be poor, you shall not sleep with his pledge. You say, well, you know, what, what can you give me as collateral? And he comes out and he's like, well, here's my blankets for the night. It's all I got. Like, all right, that'll do. And then as you know, the chill creeps into the home and you snuggle up in his blankets at night and think, oh man, it's nice to be warm. Yeah, well, he's freezing. He says, don't take that over the night. Take it as collaterable. I don't, collaterable? I think it's a George Bush word. <laughs> I had some collaterable sometimes. In any case, verse 13, you shall deliver him the pledge again when the sun goes down so that he may sleep in his own clothes and bless you. In other words, if he gave you some of his clothes or some of his blankets. And then when he, comes, when he goes to bed at night, he'll bless you and it shall be righteousness unto you before the Lord. I love it here because there's two goals in this course of action. Number one, the goal is to preserve your relationship with that person. That's always, that always must come before business, to preserve your relationship with a person. And you know what, I would ask you do, you, do you approach people that way, that the relationship you have with them is important, more important than the money, or does money come first? But the second goal was to please God. Proverbs nineteen seventeen, I believe it says, he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord. All the brethren of the poor do hate, wait, wait, that's not it. Nineteen seventeen. that was nineteen seven. Here, verse nineteen seventeen, Proverbs, it says, he that has pity upon the poor lends unto the Lord, and that which he has given will he pay him back. Listen, God, he's not in debt to anybody, and so he'll take care of you. When you lend to the poor, you lend to the Lord. So keep that in mind, that you're doing business with the Lord not someone who's impoverished. But we also see here, it says, when you do that, not only will he bless you, but it shall be righteousness unto you before the Lord your God, the one you're making the deal with. Person who's right with God, who's righteous before God, they wanna please the Lord. Jesus in John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. When a person does this, it serves as evidence that I'm right with God because my desire in doing it is to please the Lord. I wanna leave you with Psalm 15, I'm going to read a couple verses from it that I think can be a good closing exhortation as the worship team comes up. In Psalm 15, verses 1 through 3, this kind of reinforces what I just said about the idea of if you're doing this, you're showing that you want to please the Lord. In Psalm 15, it says, Lord, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? And then the answer, David says, he that walks uprightly, he that works or produces righteousness, he that speaks the truth in his heart, he that does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor. I want to be someone that my neighbor sees me, whether they're poor or rich, whether they're struggling or things are going good. They see me as someone who cares about them and who cares about the Lord. And ultimately, that's the point when it comes to loving those who are closest to us. By our actions, by our words, we want to show that we love that person and that we love the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for these laws, even though they don't necessarily apply to us. We're not a nation. These are not the way that we govern our, our lives. They, yet they give us so many good principles here that we see echoed in the New Testament, Lord. To prefer others above ourselves as married people, to love our spouses, Lord, and to give our lives away. To treat people like people and not transactions. Help us to live that out even as we commit this to you, to be those who love those closest to us, those we interact with each and every day. Lord, fill us with your spirit so we can walk it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We should have God on full display in all our relationships. His love and mercy. 
God never treated people like property. He has always dealt graciously with us. How are we to not do the same for others? When we see another human being, we must view them in the same light that God does, a fellow image-bearer who is loved and cherished by the Almighty God. They are not perfect, and seldom do others think the same way we do, but it does not change God's call to love one another. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.